0: The future of education isn't fixed. It's made, one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited. I have a great guest today, James Janone, who is Associate Dean of Academic Programs at Minerva Project and Professor of Social Sciences at Minerva Schools. Uh, He oversees strategy and development of curriculum and programs for Minerva's academic partnerships, also works closely uh, with the product team, and maybe he's doing some other things and some things might have shifted recently. So we'll find that out during the interview today as well. But before joining Minerva, He was assistant professor of philosophy at Rutgers University and had a focus, his research focused especially on the philosophy of mind and cognitive science, something I think we might be able to weave into this conversation a little bit, with a PhD in philosophy from UC Berkeley and postdoc at Stanford. James, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Bernard. So did I get that right in terms of the bio or did I have anything that's maybe been updated or changed since that was written?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I can speak about some of the work I've been doing more recently at Minerva, if you're interested in that, but everything else was spot on.
0: Great. uh, Wonderful. Well, I love to start my interviews by um, giving the listeners a chance to hear a little bit about the person we're talking to. So maybe we can start by uh, you sharing a little bit about your background and what led you to where you are today.
1: Sure. Happy to talk about that. So, as you mentioned, you know, I had a education in philosophy, and one of the interesting features, or it's been interesting for me anyway about that education was that I started out in my undergraduate studies really studying the history of philosophy and had a very kind of humanistic uh, kind of grounding in my education there. And over time, that evolved, I actually spent the first part of graduate school at Boston College kind of continuing that more historical approach. But eventually found my way back to Berkeley to finish my PhD, and I really shifted my focus into cognitive psychology and cognitive science more broadly, because I realized that the questions I was interested in, uh, philosophically speaking, among the historical figures who I had studied were questions that were still being pursued today in a more empirical way, uh, and also through collaboration among people from different disciplines, including philosophers. So that was a big shift and exposed me to different kinds of disciplinary methods in a way that I think has really informed the way I approach intellectual work today and the work I do at Minerva. The other big thing that was a huge influence on me was my postdoc at Stanford, which was very focused on teaching. And that really exposed me in a way that nothing I did in graduate school did to different met- methods of pedagogy, especially methods other than the lecture. Um, so I did quite a lot of you know what we call active learning or high leverage student-centered practices uh, through the team teaching and collaboration with other postdocs at Stanford. And that really carried into uh, my teaching as a professor, and then of course the work that I've done at Minerva since.
0: Great. So let's let's talk about that transition point. So you uh, went into academia. You were serving as a professor, but now you've moved into this kind of uh, administration role with a new and very different type of higher education community. How did that shift take place?
1: Yeah, so when I got to Rutgers, I had really put a lot of uh, emphasis on teaching my classes in a quite different way by the time I arrived there. So I really wasn't lecturing at all. I had this kind of flipped classroom approach where I was recording videos of myself uh, for the lecture part. Students were watching those kind of as their homework along with the reading. And then we did all of this active learning in class. And I was really uh, gratified to see that this seemed to have a big impact on their learning relative to the way I taught earlier in my career. So I was excited about this, but the incentive structure in traditional higher education doesn't support a lot of focus on teaching for most faculty, uh, especially tenure track faculty, which I was. Uh, it's, the focus is much more on research. And I enjoyed research, but I felt like I could have a lot more of an impact on the world and on education through the teaching side of things. So I looked around to see what other opportunities were out there, and I came across Minerva and was really excited that there was an entirely new institution that was 100% focused on what would have the biggest impact on students. And so I was lucky enough to be offered uh, the opportunity to help build the curriculum of Minerva uh, from pretty near the very beginning of the organization's history. And it was just too good to pass up at that time in my career.
0: Great. So we've talked a little bit about how you've come to be and where you are today. And let's switch it over to the community you work at right now. Minerva, can you give us a little bit, maybe a little longer than an elevator pitch, but uh a uh, little elevator uh, maybe it's a tall building. So we're going up the <laughs> ele- uh, we're going up maybe 50 or 60 floors here. Um and someone is saying, "Minerva, I've heard a little bit about it, but but
1: what is it?" Sure. So the founder of Minerva, Ben Nelson, asked a question, which I think is really powerful when he was thinking about starting Minerva, which is, if you think about the leaders and innovators and the people who will have a big impact on society, say 50 years from now, and you ask yourself, what kind of college would you wish they went to? Uh, What would that college look like? And he thought about the fact that these people, it would be very good for them if they were really... um, global citizens, if there were people who understood the dynamics of different cultures and so on, Uh, he thought about the fact that the nature of the jobs people would have and what the economy would look like uh, 50 years from now would be completely different than what it's like now. So he asked and he built a team around asking the question of how could we prepare people for a increasingly quickly changing world where uh, very narrow kind of education that focused on you know sort of today and what today's economy what today's problems look like wouldn't actually prepare people well for the future. So uh, he started Minerva Schools along with a really fantastic team, and uh, the person on the team who really drew me to Minerva was Stephen Kosslyn, who used to be uh, a psychologist at Harvard, also the dean of social sciences there, and uh, someone whose research uh, I was very impressed by graduate school and so on. And he had another number of other great people on the founding team. They built this school really because they thought, you know, if you build a company around trying to reform higher education or improve higher education without actually proving that these new practices work first, uh, it's not going to be very persuasive. So they started this school. uh, It really is a remarkable model where the students travel globally to their four-year degree. Uh, All of the classes are active learning, like I described earlier, and there are many more interesting features of it we could talk about. Um, But the school's been around for over six years now, and we've graduated students. Our first students graduated back in May. And I would say that you know it's still early in the days of the institution, but it's uh, the model has been really successful in many ways, and we've also learned a lot. And that's put us in a much better position, I think, to uh, engage with other kinds of educational institutions and think about how uh, education can evolve, especially higher education.
0: That's great. I've actually, I followed Minerva from its very beginning. And in fact, my first interview I had launched, I had a previous podcast, and there was a a pilot version of that podcast. It was called the moonshot edu show. And one of my early guests was actually a student in the first class at Minerva. And then, um, a little bit later, um, I had interviewed your director of is it learner experience is that what it was called the title student experience student maybe? experience yeah and so you're actually the third person I've interviewed um, at Minerva uh, from its beginning and, and uh, it's really been fascinating to see its growth and its development uh, when a new college starts. Uh, historically, oftentimes what happens is people look at the best practices from the past and they look at the models and the construct of what a college looks like. And they generally keep most of what existed before, but they augment it with some new ideas that they think would really make it better. Um, It seems to me that Minerva did not follow that route, that it really uh, almost started from scratch. I mean, you are using things called courses I don't know if you have letter grades or not, but could you talk a little bit about sort of what was different about how Minerva
1: formed? That's a great question. I think you rightly point out that uh, when the founding team of Minerva was thinking about what this college should look like, they really had to ask, what were the things from um, the traditional model that needed to be retained? And then how could we integrate uh, some of the practices that we thought were um, not being properly applied uh, in colleges and universities today uh, with those without compromising them. And as you mentioned, we do have courses, we have credits. Uh, in fact, students have need 120 credits to graduate like they do in most U.S. undergraduate programs. The college is accredited. Uh, it went through an interesting incubation process with the Claremont Colleges, in particular uh, the Keck Graduate Institute. Um, and is now in the process because we've graduated students of becoming fully independent and having its own independent accreditation and we thought that those kinds of things were very important so that the students who came to Minerva would not be at a disadvantage relative to their peers going to other universities when it comes to you know having an accredited bachelor's degree and so on and that obviously imposed certain constraints on what we did. There are certain numbers of uh, contact hours you need to have with instructors and so on. And so those all impose some guardrails around how the curriculum and the courses were designed. But with that in mind, we then really asked, what does the science show? What does research show? Or, you know, best practices that have been observed, at least even if they haven't been uh, thoroughly demonstrated through science, is most effective for learners, and that's really where we took this wholesale departure. So, uh, there are many, you know, instructors, college professors, and universities that do high impact teaching practices in various ways. But to try to implement those systematically so that literally every learning experience the student has is one that's supported by what we know about learning is quite radical. And that was, I think, where as you said, um, Minerva tried really hard not to compromise in any way or to hang on too much to the traditional way of doing things.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I would love to dive into some of these differences. um, And maybe from a few different vantage points, perhaps we could start with the student experience. But I'd also love, I think there might be some listeners interested in what's similar or different from the faculty experience and maybe even another experience um, in there too. So from the perspective of a student, What's different for a Minerva student compared to what they might experience if they were at Rutgers, for example?
1: yeah, there's a few different things I would say. The first you know one is that they are having this experience of moving to these seven different cities during their four year degree so they start in San Francisco for the entire first year where they get this very solid foundation in the Minerva way of of uh doing things and of education and then after that, every semester they're moving and they go to Korea and India. And Germany and Argentina and the United Kingdom. And then finally, Taiwan, they come back to San Francisco at the end uh, for their graduation in the last kind of intensive month of presenting their capstone work and so on. So that's obviously uh, quite unusual. And it's not just a um, sort of uh, traveling, vacation, study abroad kind of experience. It's a deep part of the, the learning. So I think one thing that's quite different about Minerva is that the academic experience that students are having in their courses is very intentionally and in a quite structured way, complemented by experiential learning in the cities where they live. So from the moment they get to San Francisco and then all the way through beyond, Minerva has a team, the student experience team, I think you referred to someone from there earlier, who has a set of partners in the cities who could be private industry, um, government nonprofits, and so on who we work with to set up opportunities for our students to engage in practical problem solving that's related to the kinds of jobs and and professional opportunities they may have after they leave Minerva. Uh, So they can undertake civic projects, they can go to workshops. In many cases, they end up becoming interns uh, through these partners, and that gives them a chance to apply the academic skills and knowledge in a very concrete way. Uh, So the, the really intentional and systematic marriage of experiential learning with academic learning, I think, is one very unique part of the Minerva student experience.
0: That's great. What about the course component? What does that look like for a Minerva student?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, Minerva has 100% active learning in the classes. So there are no lectures ever during class time. And that means something both for the students and for the instructors. Uh, For the students, it means they need to come prepared, having uh, engaged with the assigned pre-class work, and they need to participate. So for 90 minutes, which is how long our typical classes are, they're going to be called on, they're going to be sent into small groups to do various kinds of collaborative problem solving together. They're going to engage in debates, um, facilitated discussions, and so on, where the quality of the class experience and how much they learn and how much their fellow students learn really depends on them being prepared and engaging really actively. And I think this has two results. One is just the kind of basic learning um, fact, which is that by deeply processing information and by practicing it, uh, you learn it much better. You know, we we know the science shows that just listening to a lecture, you actually retain very little. The other piece of it is the students develop a tremendous amount of intellectual maturity uh, from what I've observed. So when you see our students engage in non-academic contexts, the level of confidence they have speaking uh, and engaging In difficult topics is really incredible relative to other students I've seen at very, very good universities. Uh, I've taught at Rutgers, Stanford, and Berkeley. And it's because I believe the students just get this constant practice. You know, they're taking three or four classes a semester, two classes per course, 90 minutes a week of this constant intellectual engagement and discussion. And that just prepares them for Doing that sort of thing in the world in a totally different way than than attending lecture classes or even the typical kind of seminar style discussion, which is more sometimes abstract and intellectual, a little bit less about problem solving than the Minerva classes are. Mm,
0: interesting. So, in terms of the um, uh, in terms of the the student experience in the class, how much learner uh, voice or choice? Is there compared to uh, how much is is prescribed and sort of developed in advance for them?
1: Yeah, that's also a really important consideration in the way we develop the curriculum. And the answer is that we want and we think it's really important for students to have agency in their educational experience, but we think that needs to be scaffolded. So we start in the first year by actually prescribing 100% of what students do in the classroom. They all take the same eight courses during the first year. And that's our general education program where we teach them these broadly applicable interdisciplinary skills and knowledge that we then expect them to apply throughout the next three years and into their life beyond. So we have around 80 individual learning outcomes that are introduced in those courses and they're assessed systematically and across the different courses that they take in that first year. And in fact we continue to assess them on those in the years beyond. But it becomes increasingly their responsibility to think about how they apply those skills and knowledge. Then they choose their major and they choose their concentration within their major. And that determines obviously the courses that they take. But those courses, again, like like traditional courses at universities are really designed by our faculty and delivered by our faculty uh, in a fairly, um, I guess, instructor-led way in terms of what the content is. But as we move them toward the end of their education in their junior and senior year, they begin to take on some more agency over what their uh, educational program looks like. So we have uh, a capstone project, which is two years long and a substantial number of units where they spend their junior year scoping out a project that they want to really dive deeply on and work on. And then their senior year, they actually execute that project with help from an advisor. And that is, of course, completely up to them what their topic is. Of course, it has to be approved. And we also have tutorial courses, which are student initiated, student-led courses. Um, sometimes faculty will propose topics that students might explore to kind of help guide them. And then students will sign up on things they're interested in. But the students collaboratively help design the syllabus and they're leading class sessions and really, you know, using their own research to determine uh, what they want to focus on and how they want to engage with that material. So that becomes a really important part of them taking more responsibility for their education as well.
0: That's great. We could go on and on and and talk. Obviously, the core of this is the student experience, but I would love to sort of uh, tease out uh, a picture of the Minerva experience from different vantage points, too. And you mentioned the faculty, and uh, it seems to me that there is uh, it's quite rare to have a higher education institution where 100 percent of the faculty are. Um, committed to a shared set of pedagogical uh, principles or uh, a shared educational philosophy that generally obviously i'm i 'm not saying anything you don 't know, but <laughs> just <laughs> sort of putting this out there that it 's quite common that that a, uh, the learner 's experience is is largely determined by the the preferences of individual faculty members, and then you sort of put that into a stew and that that 's the degree. Experience. It, it seems to be quite different at Minerva. So, could you talk a little bit about um, what is prescribed for faculty or how much uh, autonomy or uh, faculty have or the places where they do or don't have autonomy?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, also, and it is really unusual. Um, I think the important thing to frame an answer to your question with is that the decisions that we've made about how faculty um, engage with each other, with the students and with the curriculum are really driven by what we believe is best for students. And the faculty are really deeply engaged in helping us to determine what that is. So it's not um, a a completely top-down sort of from the administration kind of uh, a thing. I think that there are a couple of things that we've arrived at and that our faculty very strongly support uh, that are really crucial to this. So one is we believe that if a student takes a course, uh, how much they learn, or um, at least how much they have the opportunity to learn, should not vary from section to section of that course. So we're often you know, offering multiple sections of the same course because our, our class size is relatively small. We have usually between 10 and 20 students in an individual section of a course, except for our tutorials, which are a bit smaller. And so that means that we have designed the curriculum and the lesson plans and so on in advance. Uh, all one hundred percent of the curriculum is designed by our faculty so you know in the early days when we were doing this from the very beginning, uh, we had teams of people who had the right kind of expertise, and they work collaboratively to design the initial versions of each of these courses so that 's one thing that we do quite differently than anywhere else is there are always at least Two faculty members, and by that I mean teaching faculty members, who are working on a course together. Usually one is sort of the primary author, and then the other is kind of in a more reviewer type role where they're trying to ensure consistency of the practices that we use across different courses and they're being a sounding board for the author and so on. So, uh, this is something that people really like, by the way. I think teaching in higher education can often be a quite isolating experience. where you don't have other people to collaborate with necessarily around what you're doing with your teaching. And that's not true at Minerva. Um, Even after a course is initially designed, all the people who teach it give input, suggest changes, maybe while the course is actually in process. And certainly in between, you know, one time that it's offered and the next time it's going to be offered again, and they'll make recommendations for changes. And there's usually a process that we go through to do that. So it's highly collaborative. It's really team oriented. Um, the te- the teams of instructors who are teaching a course at the same time meet weekly to discuss how the last week went and how they want the next week to go and so on. They share tips. And of course they have different groups of students. So they'll they'll make um different decisions about how to actually implement certain things in class, but they do want to ensure that the students have the opportunity to get a really consistent experience and learn the same things. And that's also important because there is a fairly strong prerequisite structure to our curriculum. So you have to take certain courses before you can take other ones. And uh, the way we've done that really ensures that uh, as an instructor, when you get students who have taken a prerequisite course, you can be pretty sure if they've passed the course that they know a certain amount. And that really helps to allow the subsequent course to be as effective as it can be.
0: Mm, That's great. Being at a progressive experimental college myself, there's always a question whenever I talk to people about what we do is they will ask the question, well, how do you know that this works? Uh, uh, What kind of evidence do you have that this is really making a difference? How do you answer that um, when people pose that question about Minerva?
1: It's a great question. And it's a really tough question that I think we all face in higher education, including the legacy traditional uh, universities that haven't changed much in a long time. Uh, And of course, obviously, this is something that people are talking about more and more these days. How do we really show that there's a good return on investment for uh, a bachelor's degree, for example? There are several different ways that we look at this at Minerva. First is we do quite a lot of direct assessment of student learning And uh, much more so, I would say, than happens uh, typically at universities. And we're quite systematic about it. And we have done quite a bit of research on our own assessment practices. Uh, We do follow what are considered to be the best practices in assessment of learning by using very uh, clearly defined learning outcomes that students are fully aware of what they are. We use rubrics for all of our learning outcomes to make those assessments The students know what the rubrics are too, so they know what the expectation is. And uh, there's quite a lot of comparison of uh, our assessment practices across instructors and trying to look at iterator reliability and norming and that sort of thing. So that kind of internal research has been really important. Another thing that we've done has been to use third-party assessments uh, developed by others to try to measure student learning over time. Uh, in particular, we've used the CLA+, Plus, uh, which is a fairly widely used test of critical thinking. Uh, that's turned out to be a really difficult area. Uh, it's been written about a fair amount, so it's not unique to Minerva, but um, assessments like that have certain kinds of uh, uh, shortcomings, including ceiling effects where students actually will do really well. On them very early in their career. And so, if you're trying to measure their learning across four years, for example, uh, there's not a lot of room for them to grow. Uh, So, that's just something we're putting a lot of attention into right now. What other kinds of kind of pre and post type measures can we use to evaluate what students are learning? The last piece is, of course, we're looking at their outcomes. And when we look at Minerva's first graduating class, uh, their Uh, ability to get into top graduate schools and top graduate programs and to get really fantastic jobs has uh, been very gratifying for us to see. Um, I won't go into all the details around that, but um, let me just say that the students have done incredibly well and um, we're really happy to see that. Minerva is a very selective college. So in some ways, uh, we would expect these students to do quite well, but, but we believe and they tell us that uh, they think there was a lot of value added by the particular experience that they had at Minerva. And I think that goes back to something I mentioned earlier about how the um, active learning and the experiential learning they do really helps them to be ready to enter a professional career role uh, with a high degree of maturity really early on
0: great we're almost uh, at the end of our time already it goes, this conversation has gone so quickly but uh, i think there was there are two questions that i'd love to to finish on one is i, I recall that uh, i thought there was a critical thinking may, maybe the same assessment you were talking about but a critical assessment uh, critical thinking assessment that was used and, um, and and there were some really impressive gains that you were finding from students in their first year experience in the program is that still uh, holding
1: it is. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we give the CLA plus at the beginning of their freshman year experience and then at the end of their freshman year experience. And then we've been giving it a third time when they graduate. And that's where we don't see as much gain because they're already kind of at the top of uh, what the assessment can measure at the end of their freshman year. So we've seen um, quite consistent gains on that assessment over one year. I think there was one year uh, where the gains were particularly impressive and uh, and uh, that was obviously something we were excited about. But um, a concern we've had about that assessment is that it's changed in various ways from year to year. So it's a little bit hard for us to compare different cohorts using it. And, and so we're looking around to see um, what other kinds of ways there might be to do this kind of pre and post assessment.
0: Got it. That, that makes sense. So uh, a lot of my research, I sort of bridge the gap between K-12 and higher education. I've done a lot of study of innovative models on the K-12 level. And uh, quite often, whenever I come across a school that's doing the types of things that Minerva is doing, but doing something comparable on the K-12 level, sometimes it's more project-based learning, experiential learning, or something something like that, I oftentimes get um, a measure of skepticism. And there's something that you just mentioned uh, that that usually comes out in that skepticism. People will say, yes, this works fine for a select group of students. This works fine for if you're a highly selective institution, but but does this really work or could it really work for the majority of students? I'm yeah, wondering if you've had some question. conversations about that.
1: Well, not only have we had conversations about it, we actually have direct experience of it. So uh, the piece of my current work at Minerva that I, I haven't really mentioned yet is that about two years ago, you know, when we realized that the student body size at Minerva was not going to grow much further, we have around a little over 600 students currently enrolled, we started looking for other opportunities for the model that we have uh, been working with to have impact on education more broadly. And this was part of the original vision, but I think the opportunity to... Um, Pursue this came earlier than expected, and that was to partner with other universities who would be interested in using uh, our approach to teaching and learning, some of the technology we've developed to support that. Uh, so, Minerva Project, which is a for-profit company, it's separate from Minerva Schools, which is a nonprofit school, uh, has uh, this technology and also uh, other, you know, intellectual property related to the unique academic experience that we've developed, and so we started to work with other educational institutions to implement some of this in a whole variety of different ways uh, for other audiences. Uh, Our first big partner was Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which wanted to start a new honors program based on Minerva's general education program. And that's been a really uh, exciting experiment that's gone really well and we believe is going to expand into the future. But another important partnership for us has been uh, at SRM University in India. And that's a completely different population of students. Uh, They have very mixed educational backgrounds. Many of them were not particularly proficient in English. And certainly their um, aptitude and their level of preparation for college was very, very mixed. So we had our first uh, program with them starting last July. And the results at the end of the first semester were just fantastic. In fact, um, there's some hypotheses in the literature on active learning that actually has a bigger impact, bigger effect size on populations that are less Mm well-prepared. And that looks like what we saw uh, in this first cohort that we had about 800 students going through a couple of Minerva courses. So uh, we're engaging in more and more of these partnerships uh, all the way down into high school and all the way up into executive education. And we're really excited to see how our approach uh, impacts these different audiences and the early results are looking good.
0: That's great. So are these partnerships primarily the course-based component or are you also partnering around some of the experiential learning that, that you're designing for your students as well?
1: So currently the way things are set up is we don't really provide any of the experiential learning for partner students directly ourselves. One thing we are very happy to do is engage with them around you know, what we've learned about that and think you know together with them about how that might apply to their uh, student populations. And Many of the people who are excited to work with us are ones who are very committed to this vision of an integrated uh, experiential and academic learning experience for their students. So those are really great uh, conversations to have. And part of what these uh, engagements mean for us is a deep partnership where we're thinking together about uh, the problems that the partner institution wants to solve for their particular set of students and designing something collaboratively that can have a lot of impact.
0: Yeah, so um, this is wonderful. We could go on. Love to have you back ev- eventually if, if you're open to it. We could talk further and and get an update. But um, but I'm wondering what's next for Minerva. Uh, is there anything on the horizon that you can talk about that maybe we can keep our, our eyes on?
1: Yeah, great question. And I, by the way, would love to be back and talk further. Um, great. <laughs> I think you know this past year has been a lot about, especially on the the partnership side, um, experimenting with different models with partners and trying to see, you know, what kinds of uh, things people are interested in doing and what will stick. And this year for us is going to be a lot about focusing on the kinds of collaborations that we think are really going to be successful and innovative and have a lot of impact on students. And next year, we'll be about scaling that. So um, we're still in this process of understanding what it means for Minerva to work with other organizations. We've had a lot of really positive results, but uh, we need to find that focus and then find a way that we can grow this into something that um, can really, I think, help uh, start to change more and more uh, education in ways that's really impactful for students.
0: Yeah, I love that partnership component. That's exciting. James, I'm so grateful for your uh, joining me on the podcast today and for the work that you're doing. It's really important. It's a real gift for higher education. It gives us a, a glimpse of some new possibilities, some new and really promising possibilities. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Bernard. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edufutures.